traveling with us each week leading up to Christmas. We light a new candle. Advent is the four weeks leading up to Christmas, the, the Adventist, the, the expectation of the coming of Christ at Christmas. So it's all right. Well, we'll just, we'll just read. This is, reading is from Luke. Suzanne's going to read it for us, and, uh, and then we'll pray over Advent joy. Well, we appreciate Suzanne's Christmas spirit in this outfit. I have to say, best dress today. <laughs> I don't know what chapter in Luke uh, 2, I think, right? Yeah. Um, verse 6. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to a son, her firstborn. She wrapped him in a blanket and laid him in a manger because there was no room in the hostel. There were sheep herders camping in the neighborhood. They had set night watches over their sheep. Suddenly... God's angel stood among them, and God's glory blazed around them. They were terrified. The angel said, don't be afraid. I'm here to announce a great and joyful event that is meant for everybody worldwide. A Savior has just been born in David's town, a Savior who is Messiah and Master. This is what you're to look for, a baby wrapped in a blanket and lying in a manger. At once, the angel was joined by a huge angelic choir singing God's praises. Kind of like Frontier, only bigger. Glory to God in the heavenly heights. Peace to all men and women on earth who please him. Is there more? No, that's good. Keep amen. going? Okay. Amen, amen. Really good. Thank you, thank you. All right. Um, Every week up here, we're just kind of like feeling out what works best. Thank you so much, Suzanne. Thank you for that dress and that outfit. Thank you for hosting. This is her home, if you don't know that. And uh, my name is Christian. That's my wife, Sue, if you don't know that. Welcome to Frontier. Um, could I put Cameron on the spot? Could I just put you on the spot for that testimony from last week that you shared with me? Yeah. So last week, um, we, we had a whole lot of uh, amazing testimonies that just were flowing um, out of worship, and we had people share, and we even had, uh, Cameron was texting me if there's if time, if not, don't worry about it, but I actually knew a little, well, I, I ended up finding out a bit more of this uh, little testimony that he has, that he's now probably gathering his thoughts to be like, what am I going to share and what not to share, because it's, it's quite a story, but um, I just want you to remember that Frontier is a place where every single person is empowered with the testimony and the power of the Holy Spirit to proclaim and to live a life like Jesus. That means that the goal is not to just receive from the front. It's from the front we remind each other that we are significant and powerful, and as a community, we go out and continue the work of Jesus, and that we all have access to the same Holy Spirit. So when we receive a testimony, as just even just this one that he's going to share, just remember that this is just a saint living the life following Jesus and seeing Jesus do unbelievably cool stuff. And uh, I think this was just kind of fun with just in the midst of a move. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, here you go. Cool. Cool. Yeah, so we, um, well, just really quickly, I came to know Jesus when I was 13. And the biggest thing that happened after that is I wanted to share Jesus with everybody, everywhere I went. And so last year was 30 years of knowing Jesus for me, and I actually asked Jesus to help me to keep sharing him. Yeah, and that's a good thing to clap. And so uh, we're in the midst of a move. We just moved two weeks ago. And so uh, in the house, um, we had a, a garage door opener that broke. So I called and got some estimates. I, you know, evaluated them. And I said, Lord, who should I choose? 
And I work a lot, okay? I'm just going to say that. And so I'm always looking for ways to share Jesus, even if it takes three to five minutes, because I want to share Jesus, in, and I don't want work to be an excuse. So I asked Jesus, who should I pick? He said, pick Eli. He's the Israeli man. And he's really from Israel, and he had a very thick accent, and I, I just, there was something about him. So I picked him. I met him at the house the day he was going to, um, you know, fix the garage door opener. And I was doing some other things, and he was doing his thing. And the Lord said, I want you to give Eli a gift. And I said, Lord, the house is empty. There's nothing in the house. Like, all the furniture had been moved out. Like, what do you want me to give him? And he said, your piano's still in the house. And I said, oh, that's right. And so for those of you that don't know, I have a, a gift of music, and I can sing. And um, so I thought, this is going to sound so awkward. So I said, Eli, he finished the job. I said, I want to give you a gift. And I still didn't know what I'm going to sing him. And so we're walking. He said, what do you? Yeah, yeah, right. No, no, no. We're not giving him the piano. <coughs> no, 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 no. The piano got moved last night to my new house, and we're keeping the piano. So I walk over, you know, and Eli walks in. He's like, what do you mean you want to give me a gift? I said, just trust me on this one. He comes in. I walk over there. Still don't know what I'm going to sing, and I'm in my, you know, insides, I'm panicking a little bit. Like, what am I going to sing for this guy? And the Lord said, sing him the blessing. Sing him the verse, because that's an ancient Jewish prayer, and this man is from Israel. I said, Okay. So I quickly just sing him the verse, and, you know, he's behind me, and I look behind me to see how it's going, right, to take his temperature, because I don't know. And so, and he, I, I can sense something's happening with him. And then all of a sudden, he says to me, can you stop? And so I stop, you know, and I say, Eli, what, you know, like, and he says, well, I, I just want to ask your permission, could I film you so that I could show this to my family? And so I said, sure. So then we do it again, right? And so I sing the verse two times for him. And the second time, uh, again, this is a Jewish man, and I know he's not a Messianic Jew. He doesn't believe in Jesus. I know this from talking to him. And so the second verse, instead of saying the Lord blesses you, I sing Jesus blesses you. He probably didn't pick it up in the moment, but when his family listens to that, that's a seed. So I finish, and this is just the best part, and I'll finish up with this. You know, again, I just say, Eli, how are you feeling? Like, what are you feeling? Because he was, he was touched by the song. And, and He's, he starts to share with me the story of his brother and his life. And, but, but the real thing was, he said, is this. My brother is a very, very um, conservative Jew, Hasidic, you know, eight kids and all these things. And, um, but I, don't, I left Judaism a while ago because it was too hard for me. I didn't know how to keep all the rules. And then he just started sharing. He said, but I really love God. He says, I just don't know how to reconcile it with Judaism because it's too hard for me. Like there's too many rules and it's too strict and I'm... And he was such a respectful man, I could just feel his hunger for Jesus. And I, so knew, I knew we were in a God moment. And again, I'm like, Lord, what, what do you say to this, you know? So, and Jesus said, well, tell him about a carpenter that made the Judaism simple. And I said, well, there's this carpenter named Jesus. He lived a long time ago. And he, gave, he, he explained it this way. That if you want to keep the whole law, just love God with your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he looked at me, and he was like, I think I can do that, you know? And I didn't, I, I didn't try to convert him, but we, it was just a God moment. And the Lord walked away with me and said, you know, your gift is music. I have the gift of music. And he said, but everybody has tools, whether it's baking some cookies, whether it's baking a cake, whether it's inviting somebody to a park, you know, whether it's walking somebody's dog, cutting somebody's lawn. And you can have these God moments in the midst of your day. And 
you know, and to be honest, I didn't even pray for Eli, but Eli was touched by Jesus, and there was a, a big seed planted. So I just want to encourage you that it's not that hard to share Jesus when you use your gift. And you may be nervous, and that's okay, because I was nervous, because I didn't know what I was going to sing this strange man, and he's probably never asked anybody, or had anybody ask him to sing a song for him after he changed the garage door opener. You know, that was a weird moment for him, too, right? But just share the faith, because Jesus is real, and he, people are out there, and they're hungry, and they want to know him, and it, it's easy to share him. Okay, so love you guys. Uh, oof. Yeah. My favorite part about testimonies is then if they go well, then I can screw everything up and you still get what you came for this morning. Um, amen. Amen. Well, I'm wearing some pretty loud shoes. And uh, there's a little story behind them. Those online, they're going to come quick. So I'm wearing some shoes. Um, if you've known me for any extended uh, period of time, I, I generally don't take off my Birkenstocks. Um, not really because I, I love them uh, or I love the way they look. It's just because everything else fails my feet um, to feel as good as my Birkenstocks. And so um, uh, I, was, I was at a little, uh, a, a little gathering celebrating uh, someone's birthday. And uh, a guy named Matt Parsons that you may or may not know was sitting beside a, a guy named Richard Bruzzi, who you may or may not know. Is Richard here? Yeah, there he is. And uh, Richard Bruzzi and Matt Parsons, I mean, they, they look like brothers, right, if you know them? I mean, they're so similar in every way, if you know them, right? That's a joke in and of itself. I hope Matt's watching. I really do. Um, well... Here's the thing. They're both wearing these, like, these exact shoes, these blue with orange, like, like almost, I, I mean, I don't even know if it's, it's like, they, they look like, like something, like, for, for a little bit of pizzazz on maybe, like, a, an old person that needs, like, extra cushioning or something on their, with their fasciitis or something. I don't know. And, and, and I'm, but, I'm, but then I'm looking at them sitting next to each other, both wearing these shoes, <laughs> like totally casual. They're not talking about their shoes. They're just sitting there. And I mean, you can look, let me look at Richard. I mean, he looks like someone that would wear these shoes. But, but um, Matt, Matt doesn't necessarily look like that. And I, I, get, I get the whole story is that these, uh, I guess they're called hokas or something like that. Uh, Matt uh, started wearing these after he shattered his hip. And in recovery, these were, were the shoes that he had. And... Uh, and, and you may not know the Parsons story. We, uh, we had a really good interview over earlier in COVID with Renee. I mean, they've, they've, they've quickly become some of my uh, local heroes in our church, just the way that they live their life, persevere. They, they give, I mean, in the midst of, like, um, all the crazy, I, I, R Renee is sitting here, like, still, still uh, taking care of our missionaries in Nepal. She was hoping to be able to go, couldn't go on the trip that was earlier in the year. And, and Matt's living at home, was that last year or two years ago that he shattered his hip and had to be at home all year? And, and now Renee is, is uh, navigating a, um, a, uh, a potential transplant and so forth. All kinds of different dynamics they're navigating. Matt's now running two jobs. And, uh, and yet I saw these two friends wearing their obnoxiously loud shoes. And I'm like, I need to know what's going on there. And apparently, it kind of inspired each other, and he just started sharing a testimony of how these shoes were amazing and changed his life. And then Richard got a pair, and he's like, these are amazing. They changed my life. And, and then next thing you know, 
Um, I think Tony's got a pair. I think uh, um, I, I Jared might. Are your pairs on the way, Jared? Maybe, and 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 I think Tat might have a pair. Now I have a pair, and it's kind of become like, you know, this brotherly affection. I think that we've we've accidentally started this this new fraternity. It's called Alpha Omega. And that was your name, right, Tony? They didn't think it was nearly as funny. It's a secret, yeah, yeah. Anyway, but you can, if if you want to be part, just follow the shoes, and uh, and it's just kind of a beautiful thing. There's always a seat at the table. Ultimately, I I just I don't want to do a couple things. It's just highlight my feet because they're so loud, and and just the the fact that like um, I just think it's beautiful how just people in our community um, have taken like a piece of their story, <laughs> kind of something painful. You know, I have to wear these shoes because my hip is shattered. That, I mean, Matt's story is essentially, I shattered my hip, and I need these special shoes for my pain. And how his pain, his process, his story is becoming one that's just like we now are sharing in it. And these shoes kind of represent a connection, a family, a dynamic that's just so beautiful and profound. And this is the kind of thing we're a part of. And... Um, and uh, I actually just thought it would be fun just to, can we just stretch out our hands at the camera? I think Matt and Renee are watching. They, they're very, they're very uh, uh, on it. They can't be in, a, in the midst of community right now because of um, the health risks and so forth. But we just bless Parsons, Matt, Renee, your whole family, your kiddos. Uh, we just honor your process. We honor your lives. We honor your love of Jesus. We honor you in this family. And every single person who calls Frontier home that's been isolated, alone, or lonely in the midst of this pandemic. We just release the Spirit of God that unites, that connects, that loves. And we just posture ourselves afresh. Give us fresh ideas of how to connect. Give us fresh ideas how to come out of this season. Give us fresh ideas at how to be a family, a new kind of family that's, that's countercultural in every way. In Jesus' name, amen. Awesome. Okay. Now I'm actually going to have a very, hopefully, brief and uh, effective message. Turn your, your, turn your Bibles to Galatians. I want to read some scripture over us. This is not going to be just um, a teaching on Galatians. I just want to pull out a thought from this scripture, and then I just want to talk around it a little bit in light of our cultural dynamic. So Galatians uh, 3. Um, It says this in verse 23. Until the time when we were mature enough to respond freely in faith to the living God, we were carefully surrounded and protected by the Mosaic law. The law was like those Greek tutors, which you are very familiar, who escort children to school and protect them from danger or distraction, making sure the children will really get to the place they set out for. But now you have arrived at your destination. Let me say that again. Paul is writing to the church in, in Galatians and saying, you've now arrived at your destination. Now. It's present. It's a, it's a now reality. By faith in Christ, you are in a direct relationship with God. You, individually, are in a direct relationship with God. Your baptism in Christ was not just washing you up for a fresh start. It also involved dressing you in an adult faith wardrobe, Christ's life, the fulfillment of God's original promise. And then he transitions from that, that individual access we each have to the living God, to this direct relationship through Christ by faith with God, 
And he says, in Christ's family, in the family of Jesus, there can be no division into Jew or non-Jew, slave or free, male or female. Now remember, this is a culture and a context where everything is divided by Jew and non-Jew, slave and non-slave, free and male and female. Everything's divided. Everything's in a system. Everything's in a hierarchy. Everything. Everything. And he says, right now, this present reality, there can be no division. That is, we are all in a common relationship with Jesus Christ. In other words, these people that you can't stand or you can't associate with in the rest of all society, remember, they literally cannot associate with certain types of people. And he's saying, you're in the exact same family because of Jesus. We're all in a common relationship with Jesus also. Since you are Christ's family, then you are also Abraham's famous descendant, heirs according to the covenant promise. In other words, everything that all of Israel had been expecting and had been looking forward to because they were to receive an inheritance all the way back from Abraham, this is now accessible through Christ. Okay, that's what I want to have as some thoughts today on identity. On identity. Um, I think if I, if I had a message, or a message title today, it would be Navigating True Joy. We're talking about Advent joy as uh, the topic of Advent in a culture of false identities. Navigating true joy in a culture of false identities. Uh, identity has been something I think, um, how many of you just in church culture have had a study and been taught specifically on identity in the last five years or so? I've probably been three or four or five or 20 times. But growing up, I didn't have a whole lot of teaching on identity. Is that true for many of you? I didn't get a whole lot of identity teaching, what it really meant, my identity growing up. But in recent years, I believe the church has talked a lot about identity, especially maybe our streams, and I think that's really good. Uh, but if you think for a moment, what, what is that core teaching of identity? What is it in the church? Uh, yes, there were sinners, but... Is that our identity now in Jesus? Oh, that's what you learned from childhood. Right. Oh, good. I'm like, whew. you've been in the church a little bit too long to, to make that the, the definition. I was having a moment as a pastor of failing, and now I feel great because that's not what you were saying. Thank you very much. I, but yes, it's, it's that we were under this, this entire human condition of brokenness, of shame, or as the Bible calls sin. And because of Jesus, we have a new identity. But, but what we teach on that is this, this, this um, some call it sonship, or just, just the, the being, having inheritance of being sons and daughters of God. And our, our verse as a church, all of creation eagerly waits for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. What does that mean? That means that, that we are, we're living a life where Jesus has made something of what he deserves available to us now. His life, his power, his ministry, his love, his purposes, his family. And that we get to be on a mission to receive that and demonstrate in our imperfection what that is like to the rest of the world. And that's super exciting, and that continually brings new news and good news and more good news over and over and over again. And everything that we teach on why we can live like that is based on this realm of identity, right? But here's the thing. I think the church has done a real crap job at tying in how the culture defines identity, how we define identity, and speaking to the culture. I think we've done a horrible job. Uh, why? 
well, I think it's because we're, we're mostly concerned about just getting it right in the church because we're so jacked up. It's like we don't have negative intentions, but, but uh, are you with me? I could spend all my time still working on my identity stuff, and I'm not done yet. And so I feel like we, we, we even our language, our descriptions, if you were going to go talk to a, a friend, a coworker at work, or maybe an old friend that doesn't you know, follow Jesus at all, and you're going, oh, I'm going to talk to them about my identity. My identity. Let's talk about identity over coffee. Like, just picture how that would go. Oh, hey, Pam. Um, nice latte. Thanks. Uh, I thought we'd talk about identity today. Or, or I can't imagine playing golf and trying to talk about identity. I, or, or whatever you're doing with your friends. What, I don't know what people do anymore. I don't, yeah. It's COVID. I don't know. What do we do anymore? Right? Let's meet at a park. Let's talk about identity. What would you possibly talk about identity with someone? But did you know that culture is talking about identity constantly? The rest of the world is talking about it, and, and they never talk about Jesus when they talk about identity. And there's a, there, something gets lost in translation. And we have no story to tell about identity. One point today I want you to take away with is that you have a story about identity that the culture needs to hear through its own lens. I want you to think about your worldview, the culture's worldview, and how you can tell your story of identity to the rest of the culture. It's a big deal. So here's, here's, um, here's just a couple thoughts on identity politics. Yes. I'm taking a step into a deep end. I don't know if we're going to get out. If you hate me, so hate me. There's this guy named Jonathan Haidt. I'm going to go ahead and tell you. He's uh, generally like a, he's a professor, smart guy. I actually really like his posture and his vibe. But he's not, uh, he, he, I'd say he's definitely on the left in terms of his politics and so forth. But the way he speaks on identity politics, I think, is very helpful. He says this, we're in a culture war, the left versus the right, and we've been that way. And he's talking this when he wrote a book a couple years ago, before all of this madness that we currently are living in. And he says that we actually need identity politics. I mean, many of us are thinking right now that identity politics are the worst thing ever. And, and I, I kind of like how he frames it. What are identity politics? Well, that's when groups have interests, and you're organized around your group identities. And that can be something in culture very common, like um, race race identity politics, uh, gay being your sexuality, uh, and uh, the, the feminist movement is a form of identity politics, women and so forth. I think now we all have a frame of reference of how identity is being circulated, at least in one fashion, in the rest of society. And we're all getting a little nervous. What the heck is Pastor going to talk about? I'm nervous. Not that nervous. Okay. But here's what he said that I really like. The question isn't really, um, is it legitimate for them to organize it? The question is, how are we organizing around these groups? How? How is the organizing happening? And he says there's two versions in American history. I resonated with this. Because the first we see uh, groups organizing around identity politics is the civil rights movement. And he mentions who else? Martin Luther King. I think the problem is, is that Martin Luther King is probably the only example that we have of organizing well around identity politics that we're at least thought that we're familiar with as a nation. And he said that he did things right. That was the way identity politics are meant to function. And, and he said the reason being is that 
Martin Luther King and that version of the civil rights movement went after things like the question, what do we have in common? And that was the starting place of, of everything that was happening. What do we have in common? And then emphasizing things like equal access and opportunity. And he goes, that works. That works. But there's the other kind of identity politics where the organizing doesn't look like that. It's organized around a common enemy, an us versus them. And unfortunately, that organizing works in more than just identity politics. It works in everything, the us versus them. But in identity politics, it actually comes from this kind of Bedouin notion of like me and my brother and my cousin versus the stranger. And we see that even in Scripture. And this is why God speaks so often that how do you treat the stranger? And what happens in a common enemy, us versus them organization, is that you unite against them, and that becomes ultimately super dangerous. And he goes, that is what is rampant in our universities right now. He's a university professor. And he's saying, we have a huge problem in our universities, and it's how we organize around identity. We organize around us versus them, not by first finding our commonality, not by emphasizing equal access and opportunity. We emphasize the us versus them, and it's dangerous. And he goes, you, you walk into a typical college campus, at their college campus, even in the bathrooms, the students have the opportunity uh, to see signs that say, if your professor offends you and you'd like to turn them in anonymously, here's where you go. If your professor offends you, here's how, here's how you can turn them in anonymously. And just anytime you're offended at something that's said, you can have a silent voice, or I mean, it's a, it's a very odd. He goes, this is super dangerous. This is a, basically a leftist professor in a leftist institution saying that this is dangerous, which I find fascinating. And I, what I also like is that he's, he's starting with this commonality. And he's saying what, what is essentially then exalted is silence. It's just easier to be silent. And he said, we have to work on our speech culture, the openness to ideas. And I think each of us have to work on this. And I tell you, you do work on it. Because if you scroll through Instagram or your social media, um, you, either, you either have to kick some people out or you have to be open to some ideas that are offensive every waking moment of every day. What a blessing this is that we get to live in this open thing. And then why is it such a big deal when Facebook or Twitter or whatever else is being um, in the news for maybe overriding free speech in some way. That's, that's where this is coming from. And as a culture, I'm not here to give you answers. I'm just trying to say we are, we are having a collide of worldviews. We're having a collision of how we organize around identity and what's right and what's wrong and the us versus them. And what I love is that, that this professor, Jonathan Haidt, says that we have a terrible speech climate. And ultimately that free speech is, is under attack by silence. And and in an, in an attempt to protect certain voices, we're actually silencing others. Because the heart behind the whole thing is to protect voices, to protect those that aren't heard. But when you try to protect something by silencing something else, it doesn't work. Now, before you think I'm going to go off into a political vein right now, I'm actually going to talk about how all our worldviews are all jacked up. Even, even our Christian culture ones. Is that all right? Do I have permission to jack up our worldviews for a moment? Okay, thank you. Um, so, individualism. 
that, that's why I'm, I'm, gonna, I, I'm trying to go somewhere. Are we tracking okay? We're talking about identity. We're talking about some of the things like identity politics, but I'm trying to go somewhere into, into how this works maybe more biblically. And, and, and here's the thing. We live in a culture that's very individualistic. I think we all kind of know what that means, and, but in some ways we have no idea what that means. I don't think what we, what we really understand is, is that in Jesus' day, how you found your identity was, was simply based on where you were born and who your family is. So why is it when Jesus comes on the scene, they're like, who? This, this guy from Nazareth? Because that was a name and a location and a family and a city and an identity. That was his identity. And, and ultimately, you can't get outside of that identity because it is defining you externally. It didn't matter in many ways for many people. What, if someone came to their town and they, maybe they did a lot of great things with their life, that didn't redefine their identity. Their identity was external. And we live in a day and age right now where we define identity internally, meaning we look deep within ourselves. It doesn't matter who your family is or where you came from. Uh, but you can then go out and, and define who you are. You can define and make a name for yourself. The problem is that's the American dream. It's really hard for us to see the context of Scripture when we live in a society where everything works completely opposite. So our entire nation was founded on individualism, meaning you could leave your, your town or your, your country or whatever society you were a part of. You could get on a boat, and you can come to this place that had absolute freedom and opportunity by just working hard. And you can make a new name for yourself. You can start a different career or whatever else. Now, even Jesus couldn't do that. Now, even you know, the, the disciples that fished, you realize they had no options besides fishing until Jesus called them by name and gave them a new name. And even that, the option was like you could become a rabbi, but you guys, the, all of them were already passed over to become rabbis. And so they basically had two options, was, was a rabbi or a fisherman, and, and because of Jesus, they got a second option. Other than that, they had no other option. We have endless options. We live in a country where we have so many options, we have more anxiety than history has ever known in any society. But individualism isn't all bad. It's because of individualism that we have things like the civil rights movement. It's because, that, because we have scriptures that, that talk about this, the sanctity of life and that all people are created in God's image that we pursue things like equal rights. Those are biblical principles. Not all individualism is bad, but we have a culture and a worldview that is all about self. And it's not because you're selfish. It's because we're taught that it doesn't matter who your family is. In fact, if you think of someone like, and, and you read an article on them that are super successful, and maybe they're, they're uh, you know, a mogul in real estate or money or finance, and you find out that their parents are loaded, the American, the American viewpoint is like, oh, they just got it handed to them. And what do, we, what do we really love? Oh, that guy came from nothing. Nothing. He didn't have parents. His like, uh, you know, he was he was he was living in the slums, and and s someone picked him up. And look at that story from ashes to this. That's the American dream. We love it. We love it. We do it with our athletes. We do it with our our, our business tycoons. We even do it with our politicians and blah 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 blah. Long long down the line. But you realize in Jesus's day, and then how world history worked until five seconds ago. No one cared what you could do if your family was terrible. 
And your reputation of where you came from in your city was the only thing that mattered. Your identity was always spoken over you externally. And, and here's our problem is that we now live in a society, in a Western society, that it's, it's so ingrained in us to achieve our identity. What do you do? It's the most important thing you meet someone. What do you do? What have you achieved? What are you going after? What are your dreams? Nothing wrong with dreams. Nothing wrong with achieving. The, but what I'm saying is, is that we don't identify someone based on like, oh, what are your parents' names? Or what people do you come from? Or we might, we might do that for like just to get to know someone a little bit more. But ultimately, we don't define someone's worth and identity that way. We, and we encourage what? We go, look deep within yourself, find that dream and passion of your life, and then go live it out. And then go conquer it. Go achieve it. Go after it. And then, and then we enter into Scripture, and we're invited to get our identity, again, not from inside, but from something that Christ did externally. So our entire life against the way of the world is that we find identity from the outside and not on the inside. And yet entire culture, everything is defined by the inside. You determine truth. You determine your identity. You determine your dreams and passions. You determine your identity. And we have to switch the whole thing around. Does anyone else find this a daunting task? So every single aspect of how we have been trained to find our value is a different realm than what we're invited into in the kingdom. Part of me is like, that's really like discouraging. But it's also really refreshing. <laughs> and and here's, and here's how I kind of want to um, maybe just have us think about how things changed in history. In the past, um, this guy named Charles Taylor um, wrote a lot of this stuff. If you want to read his book, but I, I hear it's pretty brutal. Um, Tim Keller summarizes it really well in some of his stuff. But they, they basically said before World War II, things looked a lot different in our country. I don't know if some of you will kind of resonate with this based on the stories you hear from your parents or grandparents or yourselves. You're old enough. Just kidding. or not. But in the past, you'd make money and you'd have a family to provide or to make a name for your community. After World War II in our, in our country, you'd make money and you had sex to create your own identity. You make a name for yourself. Even your children become a piece of that. And so we have this internal and external conflict. And, and, here, and here's the thing. And this was a, an, uh, an image that I thought was fun. Have you guys seen the movie Babe? Like the pig? Babe. He's pink, I think. Yeah. So, so in that movie... I've only seen glimpses, I think, with my kids. I haven't. I've never seen seen the preview once, I think. I do like the imagery, though. Babe apparently wanted to be a sheepdog. Is that true? And, and he wanted to herd sheep. And, and the, the example is essentially that's, that's the most American, Western, individualistic, postmodern, post-World War II thing ever. Because we just defined in a little kid's movie that a pig could be a sheepdog and decide that that was his identity. And it's, I'm not telling you to like, oh, now I can't watch Babe. It's like satanic. Not, not, I'm not saying that. Your kids can watch Babe. I'm, I'm saying to observe the cultural lessons that we're teaching ourselves. And, and the cultural lesson is that Babe is his own pig. And Babe can decide what he wants to do. He didn't want to be an oink oink anymore. 
he wanted to herd sheep. And, and, I, th- and I think that we have something that we need to t- kind of take hold of, of the way of the world. And we need to start to say, oh, my gosh. My worldview is so impacted. It doesn't, I, I, I am still so ingrained. I have still so many blinders on. And that's okay. This isn't to be like pushing you down and making you feel depressed about your life or the world or anything like that. It's to be aware of the kind of invitation we have in Jesus. And so, so we have this heroic narrative of our culture that you see in a pig called Babe. <laughs> Where you determine who you are and you don't care what anybody thinks. You're free to live however you want and as long as you don't hurt anybody else. But here, and I'm going to close with this. There's some results of individualism. It's good and bad. The good are things like racial equality, gender equality. Um, Keller thinks that if it was just up to the church, women might still not be voting. Not, not the church that represents Jesus. I mean those historically that have been like conservative Christians if it was just up to those, you know, there's, there's still people today that have some pretty weird ideas about women in the church. It, it, was a, it was a Christian idea that started the track to a lot of freedoms and equal rights, but it was also Christians who used the Bible and Scripture to sustain some pretty horrible ideas. But because of individualism as a society, we've got, we've got some real beautiful things inequality. But some of the bad is, is that it's really impacted community. It's really impacted institutions. And it's really hurt the concept of work, of what true biblical vocation looks like, what it means to serve God and neighbor. Our vocations are to be an outworking of service to our God and to those around us. That is vocation. But our society has said, screw that, screw them. The person you work for is out for themselves anyway. They're not looking out for you, so you've got to look out for your own. And the problem is, is that that's become true in our organizations. And so how can you trust the person you work for and, and carry a biblical vocation? Well, it gets more complex. But we start with the fact that like, we are a people that say, if this is the way of the world, we're going to resist it. And so there's good with equality, but there's bad with how it hurts community, it hurts institutions, it hurts our vocation, and it breeds idolatry. It breeds all kinds of idols. I can, Id- I, can Id- I can make an idol out of my family. I can make an idol out of my work that I do to serve my family and to serve my community. I can make an idol out of all kinds of things. I can make an idol out of an external identity. And I can make an idol out of an internal identity. It's only when you get your love and approval of someone that you esteem will you ever get your true self-esteem. That's Keller. Only when you get the love and approval of someone that you esteem will you get self-esteem that you actually crave. We crave approval. That's why so often if you had an abusive parent, you spend the rest of your life trying to get approval of some kind of parental authority in your life. So we crave that kind of approval. But if the one you adore adores you through his saving love. Then you receive a stable identity that enables you to live in a community without making it an idol and to look inside yourself and express yourself without making that an idol. 
because in Christ alone, we have true approval. Because he doesn't approve of us because of what we've achieved. That's a true identity. And there's a bit about learning from the external identity where you were just born into a family and that's who you are. And Jesus says, yeah. There's a lot of this where you see how that is horrible. Where you see the blind beggar and how they're told their entire life that they're nothing because of who they are or who their father was. And I'm saying, this is who you are, Jesus says. This is who your father is. This is what I say about you. This is the approval I give you. This is the love I give you. This is the new name. And whatever you've been searching for in the midst of a culture and a worldview of dreamers, through your career or through your community or through a family or through relationships where you try to achieve something that's never fully going to feel achieved, the invitation is to just receive approval. The hardest thing for the Christian is to receive approval for something we didn't earn. Why don't you stand? You can come back up, James. Close your eyes, if you can, if you want. If you don't trust me, don't close your eyes. And as we often do, get in, in some kind of posture just to exchange with the Lord, with the Spirit of God. And maybe ask the Holy Spirit, what is it that I've been searching for that I can only find in you? What's the culture been discipling me to search for that I can only find in you? Jesus, we thank you that you came, you lived, you died, and you rose, and you invite us into another kind of story. I thank you that every single one of our lives is a fresh story that's yearning to collide with yours. And that we're not at our core. We are not individualists. We are not communalists, not to be confused with communists. We're not those that are just all about self or we're just all about the community. We're Christians. And that's been jacked a million ways. But all it still means is that we follow the Christ. And that we don't just look inside and we don't just look at the world around us to find who we are. We look to him. And we listen to his voice. We listen to his approval, his affirmation. And we don't follow self. We don't just follow a family or even a nation. We follow him. And that's the only way to true fulfilling joy that we receive and not achieve. I break achievement, the striving of achievement off this house right now. Joy is a horrible thing to try to achieve. I saw a stat recently that 97% of Christians have experienced an unusual type of joy that they can only describe through their faith. There's a lot of negative stats going around. How about one that actually encourages you with the kind 
of tribe you're a part of. Almost 100% of believers have experienced a kind of joy that can't be described in any other way apart from their faith. I've often woken up depressed, but you know what else? I've often woken up with a joy after a bad day because I didn't deserve that joy, I received it. And we have access to that every waking moment of every day because he paid for it, I didn't. I believe we're wasting COVID if you have not asked the Lord to remind you of what your COVID testimony is. If you want to share the gospel with somebody over coffee or on a train or on an airport or in an airplane, dear God, I hope that we get to use sometime very soon. It's your story. They don't want to hear you regurgitate some theological explanation of why you're a Christian. They want to hear how Jesus transformed you, but they want to hear today, this month. They want to hear how 2020 sustained you because of the approval of Jesus over your life and how you live in a realm where the rest of the world was crushed and where you probably felt crushed time and time again. The way you got back up is you got approval for something you didn't earn. You had an exchange with the Spirit of God that washed over you, that was patient with you, that, that didn't come with a, with a sense of trying to oppress you, but to tr- show you true freedom, true life, true joy, true peace, true love. And that's Christmas. So, Father, we invite that spirit of Christmas right now. We sit on this. We sit on this as a community. And as we respond, we just give thanks. Thank you that my joy was already purchased. Thank you that the joy I have today is already done. I don't have to feel guilty that I don't deserve it. I don't even have to feel it. Because I didn't do it. So in my moments where I feel nothing close to joy, nothing close to this kind of identity that I just talked about, I can just ask you to meet with me and be with me. And I believe today, if that's where you're at, whether you feel nothing or you're having an intimate encounter with the living God, that he's with you and he's patient with you, that he loves you and he wants you. The world will never give you that. It will never be that voice. Let me just respond for a moment, James. Just put that on your heart. Put that on your mind. We receive your joy. I didn't pay for it. I don't deserve it. I receive it. Because who who you say my identity is.